Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Good evening and welcome to Amplify, a telephone talk show that looks at life from a religious perspective. I'm Father Ron Lingwin, hoping you have felt the warmth of God's love in your life this day, but especially, especially the joy you feel when you share that love, God's love, with others. As we do each week is an introduction to our program and tying in somehow with the topic of the evening. We begin with a story that is based on faith and formed with imagination. The night seemed long. There was much pressure on Jesus. His face was flushed, his body ached, and he was tired. He questioned why he should continue doing what he was. Was he truly as special as people were saying about him? Was he living in a dream world? The words of an old woman spoke to him in the past came back to him. She had told him, Many will come to you. They will promise you, but then they will spit on you. You will hang upon a tree like a dried leaf. And she laughed her hideous laugh, turned away, and then back towards him, spit on him again and said, Now you will remember my words. And indeed Jesus did. Jesus walked over to a rock and began to ponder, to pound on it and cry out in the darkness, If you are my father, take this burden away from me. Let me live in peace. Let me work in the fields. Let me tend the sheep. But then a strange feeling overcame him, and he began to hear these words in his mind. The sheep you must tend by your brothers and sisters in the world. Be strong, my son, be strong. What I ask of you, you do not have to do, but you will do it out of your love for me and your love for mankind. When Jesus looked down at his hands, they were covered with blood from pounding on the rock. He returned to the fire where his disciples were fast asleep. He wiped his hands in the dirt, using the dirt as if he were washing his hands with water. He looked at the dirt, which had turned pinkish from the blood and the light of the fire. A strange smile came over his face, and he said, My blood will be upon the earth. It will be shed for mankind. Once again, he heard a voice in his mind which said, The blood 
you shed will cleanse the earth. He kept these words in his mind, for he knew he must die so that mankind might have eternal life. A story of faith and imagination. Our guest this evening writes in the beginning of the introduction to his latest book titled Captivated by the Master, a Theological Consideration of Jesus Christ. The English author Dory, Dorothy Sayers wrote a series of plays in the 1930s based on the Gospels. In response, many young people came to her and asked where she got the profound and beautiful ideas about Christ that she portrayed in her drama. She answered that she hadn't invented anything new. One can find them in the early church councils, such as Nicaea, Ephesus, Ephesus, and Chalcedon. The problem was that at that time in the Anglican church, clergy were de-emphasizing doctrine and tradition in favor of faddish social justice, and so beautiful doctrinal truths about Jesus seemed new and fresh. This way of thinking, of course, isn't isolated to the distant past. At a seminary where I taught in the early 90s, the students were required to do pastoral work teaching religion in local parishes. Many of the directors of religious education told them not to teach doctrine, but to focus on just making the children feel happy to be there. It's no surprise, then, that our church today is dealing with almost three generations of uncatechized adults. It's also no wonder that more and more people are rejecting organized religion in general and the church in particular. Sayers believe that many reject Christianity, as G.K. Chesterton famously observed, without having a clue what the church has taught. This is very true when it comes to who Christ is and what he has done. Sayers wrote an article to answer this problem, which was published as The Dogma is the Dogma. This is the bottom line to the present book. The Dogma is the Drama. Why write another book on Christ? This book attempts to address a gap in the knowledge of modern Christians about the nature and implications of the traditional systematic doctrine of Christ. And the author of these words and our guest this evening is Father Brian Thomas Beckett Milady. He entered the Dominican Order in 1966, was ordained in Oakland, California in 1972. He has been a parish priest, high school teacher, retreat master, mission preacher, and university professor. He received his doctorate in Sacred Theology, STD, from the Angelicum University in Rome was a professor there for six years. He is currently a mission preacher and the retreat master for the Western Dominican province. Father Milady has had 14 series on the EWTN Global Catholic Network. He is the author of four books and numerous articles and writes the answer column in Homiletic and Pastoral Review. He is also designated as an official Missionary of Mercy by Pope Francis. Father Brian Milady, welcome to Amplify. Hello? 
Father Milady, are you there? I think I have him. I am here. Oh, okay. Here. Okay, very can good. Can you hear me? Yes, I can now. Thank you. Thank you very much. Tell us a little bit about it. It in the words I just read from the beginning of your book, uh, sort of answer the question that uh, I'm going to ask you first, and that's why you've written this book. I wrote the book because I've been a teacher for a number of years, many years actually. And I am constantly amazed at how little people know about our faith. And it, it isn't just Jesus, it's everyone, everything. When Dorothy Sayers wrote The Dogmas of the Drama, one of the questions she put in it was, what is the Holy Trinity? And the answer was, the Father incomprehensible, the Son incomprehensible, the whole thing mm-hmm. incomprehensible, something made up by theologians that make it hard nothing to do with daily life and ethics. Well, I mean, if that's the way it is with the Trinity, and I don't know about you, but I've heard a number of priests on Holy Trinity Sunday say, well, there's nothing we can say because it's a mystery. Right. I mean, why do we believe then if we can't say anything about it at all? I know it's a mystery, but we certainly can say a lot of things about it. In fact, all the scriptures are about its revelation. And a similar thing is true of Christ. Um, many people have the idea that Jesus is a good man, so good as somehow to be identified with God, who preached a simple doctrine of love and pacifism, and that's about it. Mm-hmm. And you, I believe in the book, you recall that I also quote a talk given by Cardinal Ratzinger, Benedict XVI, back in the late 80s, to theologians, Catholic theologians, where he said that Christ had been reduced to either a nice middle-class bourgeois gentleman who, again, challenges us to nothing and just teaches us how to be nice, or a revolutionary, a failed revolutionary. And that the difficulty with both of these ideas, and this was to theologians in Europe, so what we're saying is that it's not just a small little group, mm-hmm. that uh, it separated Christ from his cross. Tomorrow we celebrate the exaltation of the cross. And many people think that Cross is just a regrettable episode. So that's why I did it. Right. And to uh, amplify in that a little bit, is it very, at the very beginning of your book, you talk about how modern attempts to separate Christ from his cross, as you just said, and to suggest that his purpose was merely to resist unjust social structures or to be a wise moral teacher, not only misplaced, but simply false. And they say he was just an effective leader, and that uh, the crucifixion therefore becomes an unfortunate incident, you indicate, rather than the central act of Christ's mission. It becomes a fabrication. Jesus just shows us how the just just showing us how to be human. So to what conclusion such as this does a flawed understanding of Christ lead us? Well, if Christ is the center of our religion, it obviously has numerous um, implications for the way we look at almost everything, from the liturgy to morals to uh, you name it. Uh, mm-hmm. I remember back in 2000, you may remember that the Congregation of the Doctrine of the Faith produced this document called Dominus Jesus, where it stated that Christ was the unique mediator between God and man. And all these people, these Catholic teachers said, well, how can that be? What about Buddha and Muhammad and 
you know, he's not the unique mediator, according to them. Well, what on earth are we doing in Christianity, then, if he's not the unique mediator? We call ourselves Christianity for a reason. And, again, whose birthday were we celebrating in 2000? It wasn't all those other people. It was him because he divides history. I know it isn't popular today, but the old division before Christ, B.C., and then Anno Domini in the year of our Lord, was the division of history for many, many centuries. And, of course, now it's called the Common Era by the secularists. But it's, it's it permeated even our catechesis. In, not not in a theoretical sense, of course, but in a practical sense in many places, because it's very hard to struggle against the culture, I think, in this regard. Right. Many modernists, of course, you point out, want a Christianity and a Christ without a cross. Um, how can we come to know him better? Uh, certainly, uh, your book helps to do to do that, having read it very thoroughly myself. I, I'm a priest for so so many years already. But uh, every time someone tells the story, even when it's a reflection of the church's teaching, it can, it, can, it can touch you in a new way. And I think that's part of what your book does. So how can we come to know him better? Exactly. Well, we have to start, as Dorothy Sayers said, with what the councils present to us. And then our traditional theology. Now, I know that some people question this today, and I understand that. But it hasn't been presented in a more popularized, systematic fashion for many a number of years. And we need to have a presentation of that again for at least the laity, even if they may not agree with everything in it, to be presented with the fullness of the traditional doctrine mm-hmm. concerning Christ's knowledge, for example, or concerning his grace, or concerning his sinlessness, concerning whether he was a priest or not. I know that there are priests who have maintained that Jesus wasn't a priest, because he didn't go through an ordination ritual. Well, my goodness, what does Christos mean and Messiah mean but anointed? Because he's the person of the Word in a human nature. The human nature itself is anointed. He's naturally a priest. He doesn't need an ordination ritual. And yet, for some reason, every time you... Many times when you hear people speak, you wonder where they get these ideas you may be familiar with the one of the biggies, which is the miracle of the multiplication of the loaves, where yes. a lot of people maintain that Jesus really didn't multiply loaves. Uh, he just appealed to their sharing. They all had hidden food. Well, that's not the way it's presented in the Scriptures, and it's such an important miracle because it had Eucharistic overtones again, because what you believe about Christ affects what you believe about the Eucharist, that, you know, it overshadows um, the, the whole thing. That's why I believe it's in all four of the, of the gospel writers. It was a very important miracle to them. Mm-hmm. You write a flawed Christology, Christ, Christology makes Christianity senseless. If we are to imitate Christ, we have to know and love who he really is, not some modern, comfortable reimagining that's usually reducible to, quote-unquote, niceness. On this account, grace is no longer a supernatural gift that elevates our prayer life so we can know God as God knows and love as he loves, but simply an encouragement to be nice. Human problems then are solved only with better bureaucracies and more compelling inducements to niceness rather than through a personal relationship with Christ 
who actually elevates our souls, not just our feelings and our pocketbooks. I really like how how you end there. Rather than a personal relationship with Christ who actually elevates our souls, not just our feelings or our pocketbooks. Well, Father, I don't know if you've experienced this, but I uh, one of my subjects that I teach is grace. And whenever I talk about grace in homilies, many Catholics come up to me and say, gee, I never heard any of that before. <laughs> you know, well, it's the yes. matter of our religion, too, for heaven's sakes. Sanctify grace, what grace is. And, and many people just sometimes have the idea that it's just being forgiven their sins. Well, it is that, of course. But it's uh, plunging us into a personal relationship with the people, the persons of the Holy Trinity. The big text about grace, which is used by the Council of Trent, is Second Peter 1.4, that he has given us great and precious gifts so that we who flood a world characterized by sin might become partakers of divine nature. Well, partakers of divine nature, my goodness, that's a mind-blowing thing when you think about it. And it's very central to the whole uh, theology of spirituality in Catholicism, where, again, grace isn't just us overlooking our sins or having confidence our sins are overlooked, but it's actually beginning to acquire God's point of view toward the world. The old terminology used to be acquiring a supernatural point of view. And I'd be willing to bet you there's a lot of Catholics, especially younger ones, who just have walked away from the church without ever even realizing but that's what they were. That's what they've been offered because of baptism. Yes, you know, to see time from eternity, and uh, Christ, the nature of Christ again helps with that, because since he's the person of the Word with the divine nature, and through his human nature, you know, the um, what they used to call the missions, the exter- uh, external and internal missions of Jesus, we come to experience the internal mission of the Holy Spirit which is our transformation to be like God. And that's in all the fathers of the church, Eastern and Western. Well, the Western uh, Eastern fathers tend to emphasize the transformation a little bit more. But they're all talking about more or less the same thing using different terms. You, um, you write about the fact that Jesus makes sense. Um, why did Jesus, then the Son of God, become a human being? And what enables us to see the world as as God does, and, and, and part of the answer, of course, is sanctifying an actual grace that you just referred to. Right. Well, uh, the question of why Christ became man, human being, is a very difficult and important one. When St. Thomas took up this question, Aquinas, that is, he said, we only know what we're told in the Scriptures— and St. Paul says Christ came to earth to save sinners. So God could have certainly become a man if he wanted to. He had the power to do that. But we know that he basically came to remedy and cure for the original sin. So again, another big doctrine that people have a lot of questions about today is the doctrine of the original sin. They seem to think that we're all born more or less immaculately conceived, mm-hmm. <laughs> that we're just good. But somehow society made us flawed. But we have no internal um, desire to dominate or concupiscence or larceny or, or things like that in our souls where we use and abuse other people. And yet that's 
central to the message of Christianity, too, that we're not what we ought to be, and we can't make ourselves what we ought to be. Now, the Enlightenment, that's to say the people who thought in the 18th century and partially into the 19th century, thought that we could solve all these problems just by human reason. Well, uh, the people who thought that way, and that was very characteristic also of the 19th century and the Industrial Revolution, were the people who eventually produced, you know, World War One, with millions of people slaughtered for no reason, really, and then the gas chambers and the whole thing of World War Two mm-hmm. were not what we ought to be, but no state, no political system, no bureaucracy, no program is going to change our souls as such. And let me just we have to have a redeemer. Right. Uh, exactly. Let me just read us out to our next break. Uh, you write that we cannot understand Christ's coming unless we understand sin. There's a lot we can learn from Adam and uh, the grace that we must rely on uh, because sin has changed us in the world in which we we live. And um, the darkening of our intellect, the weakening of our war, our will with malice, the loss of control of our emotions, and the loss of perfect integrity between our desires and our body's responses to the world. And so um, one of the questions perhaps we should deal when we come back is, why did God allow us to fall into sin? We'll be right back. Welcome back to uh, Amplify, where our guest this evening is Father Brian Mullady, O.P., Order of Preachers, the Dominicans. His latest book is titled Captivated by the Master, a Theological Consideration of Jesus Christ. And he writes, uh, there's so much to learn, so much for us to teach in such a short time, that Christ was a living example of what the life of goodness and virtue looks like. We need to know that in the age in which we live, that human freedom is found in the sheer goodness of the human will filled with with God, that Christ gave us a good example of forgiveness. And I read, he writes, we are tempted to say that in the incarnation, Christ just came down from heaven. But that's not quite right. It's more complete to say that he elevated human nature to himself. So that when we see Christ in the flesh, we see the person of God himself. This nature can never be lost We can lose that union by sin, but Christ could not. Why is it then that um, Jesus uh, allowed us uh, to sin, and how does that sin affect us? Well, well, let's, let's approach it this way. The world in which we live today, we have so many problems. The world has often been filled with many problems. But how is it that sin has changed us in the world in which we live? Well, uh, I'm always amused by this question about the original sin, because I had a sister friend who used to say, now, Jesus should have just stopped us from sinning, and everything would have been perfect. Yes. <laughs> right. <laughs> says, I hate that happy fault, that necessary <laughs> sin of Adam thing from the, from the, uh, from the Easter vigil, uh, the candle uh, lighting. Look, if you consider human nature as such, you have a body, a soul, which is composed of passions, an intellect, and a will. And the way they should exist 
is that the passion, the intellect, uh, exists for infinity, really, because it's potentially infinite. So that means the knowledge of God. The will doesn't exist to do evil. It exists to do good. But, of course, because it's free, it can also do evil. But that's not its primary purpose. The passions, according to uh, authentic philosophy, and that's why philosophy is very important to understanding these things, exist in union with the human soul to not only reflect the way animals feel and experience sense, knowledge, and desire, which would be individual things, but because the soul is one, and even Aristotle knew this, um, they exist to be obedient. Now, I don't say kill by, notice. Mm-hmm. I say obedient to reason. So they exist to spontaneously support the truth. And then the body, of course, uh, this is a problem that people like Aristotle find very difficult to decide, to solve. Uh, the relationship with the soul, which I believe Plato and Aristotle knew was immortal because of intelligence, spiritual knowledge, uh, they had trouble dealing with the death of the body. So uh, Plato's solution was a, a mythical one, you know, and, and the body was evil. It was a prison into which we fell. Now, in Christianity, we don't believe that because, for one thing, it's not reasonable. The body is just as good as the soul, and it's supposed to be eternal also, or at least free, I would say, in this world from any kind of corruption. Mm-hmm. Now, that was the way man was created because it reflected someone created a grace with no sin. And the only reason we know Adam and Eve were created in grace with no sin is from the scripture, from the book of Genesis. Uh, and also, one of the other books of the Bible says God created man right. So there was this marvelous unity and integrity within. And this unity and integrity was shown, among other things, and John Paul II is a master at explaining this, before the sin. Because remember, Jesus, in the question of divorce, uh, he says, uh, Moses permitted you to have a decree of divorce, but in the beginning it was not so. Mm-hmm. And then he quotes, the man will leave his father and mother and cling to his wife, and the two shall be one flesh, which God has joined together, man shall not divide. Well, what is that beginning? That refers to the world before the sin. Yes. So what was life like without sin? Well, Adam and Eve, remember, when they first saw each other, were naked, but they were not ashamed. Now, John Paul II spends many Wednesday audience discourses explaining what this means. And what it means is that the original marital union was an interpersonal one, as reflected in Vatican II's document, Gaudium et Spes, where it states that to be a person means, first of all, no person may be an object of use, but a subject of love, and that a person only realizes themselves in a sincere gift of themselves to another. This is reflected in the Holy Trinity, that spent all of eternity as persons doing nothing in a perfect society but giving and receiving in love. There's no domination, manipulation, uh, violence to take egotistically the other's but they, they give it all. Now, as a result, when Adam and Eve see each other, they reflect this. And then their body, with the gift of their sexuality, expresses this union of interpersonal communion. 
which has already existed in their soul, and that's why they're said to be naked and not ashamed. Now, once the sin is committed, they lose grace, and in losing grace, they also lose this marvelous integrity. They don't lose the natural gifts, not as pessimistic as the the Lutherans were, where a man is totally depraved. We're not totally depraved, but we have a weakness, and we tend to ignorance. We tend to... We like actually manipulating people sometimes if we're honest about it for our egos. And our passions have a tendency not to support this communion of heart and, in fact, lead against it in some ways, rebel. And then the body experiences, uh, before the sin, it did not have the necessity of dying. It still could die. It wasn't a risen body, obviously. But if it had died, it would have been like Mary's death of the Assumption if she had died, because there's a debate about that, Mm -hmm. without corruption. It would be like Snow White eating the poison apple and falling into the, you know, sleep living death with her rosy cheeks and all that stuff, you know. But um, this is the condition in which the human race finds itself. Now, I am very uh, amused the older I get. and more experienced human beings, that it seems to me that this condition is the most evident Christian doctrine to the senses, to everyday life, that we're not what we should be. Comedy and tragedy are both based on this. Um, And yet, there are people who deny it constantly and blame society. You know, um, I burned down a city because of something that happened 300 years ago. Or because I'm enraged, it's not my fault. Well, I mean, whoever happened 300 years ago or, uh, you know, some condition in a bureaucracy didn't pick up a torch and throw it into a building, you did. (laughs) And uh, we have this continuous desire to um, uh, deny responsibility. You can see this in Adam and Eve. Remember when they woke up and discovered that they were naked now and they were ashamed which means that they could use their sexuality as a means to dominate each other. Um, you know, God says, well, who taught you you were naked? Mm-hmm. Have you been eating the fruit of the tree? So he looks at Adam, and Adam, like us, says, now see, when I ask this question, lots of the ladies say he blames Eve. No, he doesn't blame Eve. He says, the woman you put with me here was your bright idea. You know, he blames God. So mm-hmm. then God looks at Eve. How is it that you have done this? Does she accept responsibility? The snake. Right. <laughs> the serpent that beguiled me and I did eat. So this condition is a condition we can't save ourselves from. Uh, the fact that we're not what we ought to be is something that every piece of literature reflects. Modern films reflect this. All heroes at least in the films in the 50s and 60s when they still had a morality, you know, all heroes have a tragic flaw, and um, they they can't redeem themselves from it. It's just uh, something that the human condition constantly demonstrates. So there was a certain point in time, this is the famous uh, difficulty of the, um, you know, the fitting time for the Incarnation. Why didn't God take flesh to save us in this condition as soon as it was committed? Well, Aquinas' answer is because the human race wouldn't thought they needed a redeemer yet. 
They need to be convinced after centuries and centuries of, oh, idolatry and all kinds of things, um, that they needed to be saved. But why didn't he wait longer? Well, because if God had allowed, waited longer, people would have despaired completely of accepting redemption. So it was, in, as St. Paul says, the fullness of time when Christ chose to be born in, in the stable. But it was its primary, God allowed the sin in order that he might bring forth a greater grace. Yeah, I like the way you and see that it. And that greater grace is the incarnation. Yeah, I like the way you see it. You write it in the book, uh, to show us more love and goodness and become one with the human race as to free us from our sins that God could have redeemed us simply by saying no but that would have been a yes. denial of his justice. That's right. And, and, and reason, you know, it's not thought truth. It, 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 God had the power, certainly, to do that. But the question is, remember, God isn't, we don't believe God is like a petulant child who sits up in heaven and just, you know, decides what he wants to do day by day. There's, God's truth is connected to his love. And so that's, that's the reason. And who could have thought, who could have thought, it's the miracle of miracles, as the medieval theologians used to say, that God would choose to do this by taking flesh. Mm-hmm. It's it's a mystery that we'll never understand. There's so much to it. There's always an astonishment. And there are many such mysteries, happen. aren't there? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's astonishing that it should happen to begin with. Um, that's why in the Summa of St. Thomas, he never says there's a proof for the incarnation. He always uses the term fitting. Mm-hmm. And what the term fitting means is that there's more truth in we can, that we can see in this particular choice of God than in any other choice we can think of. But that there's no proof for the incarnation. There's no proof for the, the redemption, although it is not an unreasonable thing. But you can't prove it in such a way like you could two plus two equals four, so that you couldn't uh, you, you'd be absolutely convinced just by reason. It's something you have to accept on faith, as is shown constantly with Christ, because he does all these things for all these people. Some believe and some don't, and they all experience the same miracle. Right. Again, the the human condition seems to suggest to many people that we have. Um, no, no real power over over Satan. But you you write in your book that Satan has no real power over us if we rely on God. How how should we understand that? Well, Christ, as you know, uh, Christ is certainly much more powerful than Satan is, mm-hmm. and you can demonstrated that in the famous episode of the Temptation where he could have performed an exorcism. The, the demonology of the New Testament is an important, um, but very little studied aspect of it, because the first people to recognize Jesus are the demons. Um, when I studied Scripture many, many years ago, um, one of the things we were taught by this particular teacher in the New Testament was that uh, about we had a whole section on demonology because the demons are the first people to confess him of course it doesn't mean that they're saved because they can't be 
but they see what he does and they know who he is and they don't like it. <laughs> yes, right. Of course not. And uh, in the, in the uh, temptation, Jesus submits himself freely to that, first of all, because of the new Adam, and Adam was tempted. Secondly, because he wants to show that no matter how holy you are, you're not free from Satan's suggestions. Now, I know modern scholars, some of them believe that Christ could be interiorly tempted to concupiscence there. I, I do not. But he was certainly tempted by suggestion of Satan. And you'll notice that he doesn't perform an exorcism there. The devil quotes scripture, he quotes it back. Yes. And he only becomes exasperated and tells Satan to get lost when Satan finally wants to worship him, which is the, the worst thing of all. But there's all these corrupting suggestions made, even quoting scripture, because the devil could quote scripture to try to get him to do an egotistical act, basically. Mm -hmm. You were talking reliance yeah. on God. You were talking about the incarnation a little earlier and you write that Jesus is not a human being with a divine nature layered on top. And again the title for your book is Captivated by the Master. Uh, but that the union between God and man takes place in the person of Christ. God is not changed into flesh rather flesh is deified while still remaining true flesh people uh sometimes mis mis misunderstand what is meant by deified say rather flesh is deified while still remaining true flesh right um flesh is united to the person of the word every human being has a person is uh, a person uh, an individual of reasoning nature with a human nature. And they're not the same. Mm -hmm. So many people believed that the incarnation, and that took them 400 years to work all this out, uh, took place in the natures. And then either one supplanted the other, the two got fused together into something that was neither God nor man. Um, and the fact that, uh, you know, the, the idea that there's only one nature, you know, if we spoke Greek, a lot of these heresies wouldn't be so weird to us, but the word for one nature in Greek is mono, is one, fuses or physics is another. So monophysite is a person who believes there's only one nature in Christ. He's either God who seems to be human, that was one position, or he was man who just was so good that somehow God to us, but wasn't God. That's the Arian heresy, really. Mm -hmm. Remember, he was a perfect creature, still a creature. <laughs> right. Or you fused them into each other, and so there were some who believed that he was he was man, but his intellect was supplanted by the person of the word. So he didn't have a human mind, well, uh, or soul. If he didn't have a human soul, he couldn't have been obedient in our place, and things like that. So after centuries, they finally worked it out to be the definition made at Chalcedon, which was, you know, one person, two natures, without separation, without division, without union, without because they're all joined in the person. And since, again and again, in Greek, if we spoke Greek, this would be a lot easier. The word in Greek for a person is a hypostasis. That's why it's called the hypostatic union, because both the natures are preserved as separate 
they act in communion with each other because they're both united to the person of the word. So in the person of the word, human nature receives its final fullness as being not only reflecting God, not only as being united to God, but uniquely united to God. So it's like the the classic term used is it's a tool of divinity. Yes. You write that after... Uh, and that comes... No, that go comes ahead. From the, that comes from the ancient... Last of the ancient Greek fathers, St. John Damascene, uh, who, who taught that it was a tool of divinity. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, it's not an inert tool. It's a reasoning tool and free tool. But nonetheless, as the Christmas preface says, in him we see our God made visible and so are caught up in love of the God we cannot see. You write that after taking flesh, Jesus reflects the human powers that he has begun to assume in in time. And uh, what does it mean to say, we just have uh, two minutes before we take our next break, but what does it mean to say that Christ was full of grace and truth? All right. Well, actually... That would take a longer explanation, um, because Christ had three kinds of knowledge, and he was full of grace, first of all, because he had the unique grace of being the person of the Word that expressed itself in sanctifying grace like ours and virtues, but he had them, naturally speaking, not as an adopted son, and um, he had them to the nth degree that you can possibly have them. And then finally, there's a third grace in Christ, which is that this is the source of grace in us. We now, to receive grace, have to do so through Christ, and that includes his human nature, and that includes the fleshly church, the hierarchical church, which is an extension, like the sacraments, of his human nature throughout time and space. So the fullness of grace means that he is, as a person, God. We are not, Mary's not, nobody else is. But in his human nature, that's reflected by, first of all, the joining of a human intellect and a human will, human soul, human body, to the person of the Word. Yes, and uh, it would be heretical to believe that Christ was truly ignorant of his calling, you're right, Uh, because divinity is by definition unchanging and impossible to uh, dilute. And uh, at its most fundamental level, the grace that you've been speaking about, that grace is a true relationship between a person and God that affects a genuine change in the soul Um, and the that we, but we have to understand we can always lose grace. Um, but Jesus is... Well, in Christ's case, it was God yes. who acted through a human soul and body. Right. And, uh, and, the, uh, and, and the question, he had, remember, Jesus had two intellects. Okay, don't say anything more because we need to take a break. If you hold your thought, we'll be right back. Sure, bye. 